Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of the rock. Then he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, saw where he laid. Chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they may go and anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of them into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, I I want you to see this because we cover this every Easter. We understand the tomb was empty. Jesus has risen. But can you imagine if you were in these ladies' shoes? Growing up, we uh, did lawn care, and I cut grass at the cemetery once a week. And you want to know what? I was never scared at the cemetery. But you also want to know what? I've never saw someone go into a tomb and out of a tomb. Usually, when you bury somebody, they stay buried. And so we understand what we're reading here. There is no one like Jesus. And that means something for you and for me this morning. How many questions do you think you've answered in your lifetime? How many questions do you think you have answered in your lifetime? I was doing a little research on this, and I found out, on average, a four-year-old will ask 200 to 300 questions a day. 200 to 300 questions a day. Now, on average, the average kid between ages two and five asks over 40,000 questions. Now, listen, some of those questions aren't very tough. If, if I was to ask you, how many questions have you answered? Thousands and thousands. <clears throat> Some of the, the questions that we have to answer aren't very tough, are they? Uh, where are you going to eat? What do you want for dinner? Now, I say it's not very tough. They're not very important questions. But last night, I promise you, our family sat around trying to decide what we were going to have for dinner for about a half hour. Right? It shouldn't be a tough decision. But sometimes they are. Other decisions, if we looked on Google, the most common question is what should we watch? What to watch? Most common question from last year. But then... There are some really important questions. For me, it was back in 2003 when I proposed, will you marry me? It's a very important question. What am I going to do for a living? Am I going to go to college? Am I going to go to a trade school? Where am I going to go? Where am I going to live? All of those are important questions. Today you have two very important questions. Two very important questions that I'm going to ask you 
I've already asked myself. The first one is, are you looking for the kingdom of God? You met Joseph. He says that he was waiting on the kingdom of God. Are you looking for a better kingdom? Are you looking for the kingdom of God? If so, leads to the second question, have you met the king? The king is alive and well, and he invites you into a personal relationship with him. You can know the king. And so those aren't light questions. Those are eternally changing questions. I'm not asking if you know some facts about Jesus. I'm asking, do you know him? He is alive. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's interceding for his people. He saves today. He rescues today. He transforms lives today. Do you know him? All right, so let's, let's dig in. Those two things, those two questions are what we're going to look at. First one, are you looking for the kingdom of God? We see that with Joseph of Arimathea. He's looking for the kingdom. And we see all throughout the Gospel of Mark. So real quick, the Bible, 66 books. It's a huge book, right? And, and so if I'm working with students, I try to break it down. Just pick one of the 66 books to read. Don't try to read all the way through. That's kind of a difficult task, but dig in. Four of those 66 books are called Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In the Gospels, we hear the good news about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We have been studying Mark, the Gospel of Mark. And in the first eight chapters, what we see is Jesus as king. And so I want you to, to see the disciples are walking with Jesus as he's doing some amazing things. And we see Jesus is king over sickness. There's a man with leprosy. And usually in this time, if you go up and you touch a person with leprosy, that person doesn't get better, you get leprosy. But Jesus goes to this man and he says, will you make me well? Jesus says, I will. He touches the man and the man with leprosy is made well. Jesus doesn't get sick. Why? Because he's king over sickness and disease. And then we, we keep reading, and there's these friends, these four friends bringing this man that's been paralyzed, and they lower him down. And he's laying down on this mat, stuck. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Everybody gets mad at that. Well, Jesus is a king who has power to forgive sins. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. But he also says, get up and go home. It says the man leaped for joy, took up his mat, and ran home. Why? Because Jesus has that type of power. That's the type of king Jesus is. Or, you guys know the story of when there's a storm. The disciples, these men are tough dudes. They're fishermen by birth. They, they've been doing this for a long time. They're not afraid of the water. But there's a storm that came up and it terrified them. And finally, they get to the point where they can't save themselves. They go to Jesus. Jesus is asleep. He's, they say, do you care if we die? And Jesus gets up and says, peace be still. Jesus has that type of power. That's the type of king Jesus is that even the nature, the wind, and the seas obey his voice. And then we see there's a 12-year-old girl. 12-year-old girl gets sick. This man goes to Jesus and says, hey, I need you to come to my house quickly. She's sick. She's almost dead. He's on his way. Jesus stops and heals a couple people on the way and then news gets back that the girl's already dead. Don't worry, don't bother the teacher anymore. And Jesus tells the father, don't worry, just believe. 
And they keep walking. They get to the house, and obviously the people are in mourning. And Jesus says, why are you crying? She's only asleep. And the Bible says that they laughed at Jesus. You want to know why they laughed? They didn't know what type of king they were in front of. Jesus goes up, tells the girl to get up. She gets up. It's as easy as if the dad had to go wake her up from a nap for Jesus to say, get up, after she was dead. That's the type of king we have. And that's chapters 1 through 8, and there's so much more. that If you want to, you can read that. Mark's chapters 1 through 8, you'll see the type of king that Jesus is. But then, the last half of the gospel, we see the purpose of going to the cross. Why does Jesus go to the cross? Why is he nailed to a tree? And we see that we have a huge problem. We're separated from God because of our sin. All of us in the room, me, you, we have been separated from God because we've messed up. God said, this is the standard. We don't meet that standard. But Jesus does meet that standard. And he says, hey, I haven't come to be served. I come to serve. And to what? Give my life as a ransom. He goes to the cross so you and I don't have to. He lays his life down so that you and I might live. And you want to know what the exclamation point of both of those themes in the Gospel of Mark are? Mark chapter 16. He is risen. That's the type of king we serve, the living king who has defeated the grave, who has defeated sin, who has defeated death. You want to know why he went to the cross? Because he laid his life down, only to take it back up again. That's the exclamation point. That's why we celebrate Easter That should get your blood flowing. You have a God that loves you so much, you see it on the cross. And you can know him. And so that's the the gospel of Mark. But then you you get to the end of chapter 15, and Joseph's like, I was waiting for the kingdom, but my king's dead. Put yourself in in their shoes. Right? From Friday after the crucifixion, Jesus has breathed his last His following has been going after him for some of them for three years, some more. They thought he was bringing the kingdom of God. They saw the power that was in his fingertips. And now he's dead. Shattered hopes, broken dreams. And and maybe that's you. And maybe that's you. Have you ever gotten your hopes up? only to have them shattered. That's Joseph of Arimathea. He was waiting on the kingdom, but now he's burying the king. And you want to know who else had a story? Peter. Peter said, Jesus, if everybody runs away, I'll stay right by your side. I will not leave you. Peter, who said, you are the Messiah, when Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? He got it right. You're the son of God. But now, Jesus died on the cross, and Peter ran for his life. Denying the king. You think Peter understands broken dreams, shattered hopes? The ladies, they're going, they're walking in chapter 16, verse 1, to put spices on a dead body of the one they thought was bringing in the kingdom. The disciples, they're gone. They all took off. Their hopes and dreams dashed. You ever have any broken dreams, shattered hopes? You might have them right now. I'll, I'll start off with a, a, light, a, a light illustration. Cincinnati Bengals. 
They get your hopes up, don't they? They get your hopes up. If you've been a fan for a long time, you know the, the way this story's going to end. But this year, this year was different, right? They won enough games. Not only did they make the playoffs, they won the playoff game. And I was tired of students saying, I've never been alive to see the Bengals win a playoff game. Well, now you have. Not only did they win the first one or the second one, but they also won the third. They're the AFC champs. They go to the Super Bowl. It's back and forth. And they have the ball with a chance to win the game. Jamar Chase is running down the sideline. The defensive back is tripping and falling. He's wide open. And Joe Burrow gets sacked. Game over. Hopes go up, and then they're crushed. Now, that's a light example, right? At the end of the day, it's grown men throwing a ball filled up with some air. Not that big a deal. But what about other shattered hopes and broken dreams? What about your marriage? You had one expectation, but you realize it's another. What about your family? You were hoping for something different, but this is your situation. What about your job? You thought you should have had this promotion. You should have had this job carved out for you. What about school? You thought you'd be making this grade and getting these offers. What about your athletics? You thought you'd be getting more attention from college. You thought you'd be offered a scholarship, but it's not there. What about your personal life? Maybe you thought you'd be a lot further down the road than where you are at this morning. You see, here's the awesome news. If God can turn the greatest tragedy, which is the crucifixion, the murder of his son, into the greatest triumph, which is the resurrection of his son, he can do the same in your life. But it starts with meeting the king. It starts with meeting the king. C.S. Lewis had, had a quote. He puts it this way. If in life I am continually after something that doesn't satisfy here, that this world can't satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You see, if you're not searching the kingdom of God, you're searching for something that only the kingdom of God can fill. And it's only found in the king. Searching for the kingdom of God. Um, I, I, I like this example. Um, moving from greater to lesser. So we see what God did with Jesus on the cross. The, the greatest tragedy to the greatest triumph. Um, I asked Mike. Mike, wave your hand real quick so people know who I'm talking about. I asked Mike. This is legit. These are facts about Mike. Mike's a big dude. His nickname's Big Mike. He has large biceps. He can bench press 230 pounds, and it's not really hard for him. Right? Just cranks it out. So, if Mike can bench press 230 pounds, do you think he can bench press 200? Yes. How about 135? That's 145 on each side of the bar. You think he can get that? Yes. He throws it up easily, repping it. Greater to lesser. If God does that with the greatest tragedy, turns into the greatest triumph, he can handle your shattered dreams and broken hopes. But you wonder what the key is? The key is going to God. You want to know where broken dreams live? Broken dreams live in a life that tries to figure it out by yourself. 
If you're trying to pull yourself up and clean yourself up and make everything right, you will not be able to do it. Shattered hopes, broken dreams. However, if you run to the king, you'll find the kingdom and everything you've wanted. Psalm 1611 says, In the presence of God is the fullness of joy. At his right hand, pleasure forevermore. The joy, the peace, the purpose that you're so desperate for, that I'm so desperate for, found only in the king, and his name is Jesus. And he went to the grave, and he rose from the dead. There's a a pastor, S.M. Lockridge is his name, probably the greatest sermon quote I've ever heard, and this is what he says. So, So this is Joseph on Friday, right? This is after burying Jesus. This is where the quote comes from. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. This is what he says. It's Friday. Jesus is hanging on the cross, feeling forsaken by his father, left alone and dying. Can nobody save him? Oh, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The earth trembles. The sky grows dark. My king yields his spirit. It's Friday. Hope is lost. Death has won, sin is conquered, and Satan's just a-laughing. It's Friday. Jesus is buried, a soldier stands guard, and a rock is rolled into place. But it's Friday. It's only Friday. Sunday is a-coming. Are you looking for the kingdom? Have you met the king? Which leads us to chapter 16. Number one, in meeting the king... Jesus really was dead. Jesus really was dead. Uh, There were rumors going around and other theories that maybe Jesus didn't really die on the cross. Maybe he wasn't really dead. Maybe it was something that they thought was... No, Jesus was really dead. You see this in verse 1 when they're going to anoint the body. They're, They're anointing a dead body. But you also see this all throughout the New Testament. The centurion, he knows when somebody's dead or not. He was a professional executioner. The crucifixion wasn't unusual to him. What do you do for your day-to-day job? That's how familiar this guy was with death. And when Pilate asked him a question, he's not going to lie to him. His life's on the line. So he says, yes, Jesus is dead. And then we we see later on in John 19, 32 to 34, the soldiers therefore came, broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead... They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. He's dead. And just to be sure, when the spear goes in, blood and water flow out. Jesus is dead. And and you just look at the, the record. Jesus was at the point of death in the garden praying. It says that he's sweating drops of blood. He's in anguish. It's not an exaggeration. He's already suffering, but then he's beaten by the Sanhedrin. He's beaten by the Roman guards. Remember, they made a scepter and and beat him and said, hey, if you're the king of the Jews, prophesy who hit you, right? They they take thorns and they shove it on his head. And not only that, they do a flogging. And in Roman rule, a scourging oftentimes killed the person before they got to the crucifixion. It was brutal, brutal. But not only that, he had to carry the cross. And Jesus doesn't make it all the way to the hill. He collapses. His body is giving out. But then, if that's not enough, he's nailed to a tree. Nailed to the cross. 
And we're not talking little nails. We're talking iron spikes through his hands and through his feet. And he's hanging on the cross minute after minute, hour after hour. And then he gives his spirit up. He says it is finished. And he breathes his last. And then just to make sure, a spear through his side. We have to understand Jesus was really dead. As a matter of fact, there's some modern medicine. There was a, a journal written by the American Medical Association. Three medical doctors concluded clearly the weight of historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted and supports the traditional view that the spear thrust between his right rib probably perforated not only his right lung but also his pericardium and his heart and thereby ensured his death. Make no mistake, Jesus was really dead. He wasn't resuscitated in the tomb. He was resurrected in the tomb. Jesus was really dead, but he was also really buried. You see this in verses 2 and through 4. It says, very early on the first day of the week. I, I don't know if you noticed this, but as the sun was rising, just imagine about 2,000 years ago, you have some ladies that were able to buy some spices and go to a tomb looking for a dead king. But that's not what they found. But very early, first day of the week, just as the sunrise, they went to the tomb. Why did they go to the tomb? Because they knew exactly where Jesus was buried. So you have these ladies. You also have Joseph as a witness knowing what tomb, because it was probably his tomb. But then you also have the Roman guards. They come, and I love this, the task that they were given. You talk about an impossible job. You ever been asked to do an impossible job? The Roman guards were asked to do an impossible job. Pilate tells them, take a guard. Go, make the tomb secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Right? You got some Roman soldiers there. Oh, that's a done deal. Nobody's getting in, nobody's getting out. As if it were a hard thing for God to say, get up. Jesus was really dead. Jesus was really buried. But this is the point. Jesus really rose from the dead. You see this in verse... 5 and 6. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Every time angels show up, people are alarmed. Don't think of the, the cartoon characters of angels. They are fierce beings and terrifying, even though they bring good news. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. And then I love this. He's not here. See? This is where he was laying. He's not laying here anymore. Why? Because he's risen. I, I love this. And, and just real quick, five pieces of evidence. And this isn't an exhaustive list. This is just some. Because I know this is hard for you to believe. You want to know what? It was also hard for the disciples to believe. But that doesn't make it untrue. Just because something's hard to believe. And so we look. Number one, the stone was rolled away. And we know that the angel rolled the stone away. These two ladies had a problem. They had to get to the body, but they couldn't get to the body because it was sealed. There were Roman guards, and nobody would roll that stone away for them. But God did. So evidence number one, the stone was rolled away. Evidence number two, the tomb's empty. There's nobody there. I love what Danny Aiken said about this. The one whom the angel invites them to know is the one whom they have known. Right? So they say, hey, he's not here. You know the guy, Jesus. He's not here. It's the same person. 
The announcement of the angel is the gospel. Jesus has risen. And the place from which the gospel is first preached is the empty tomb that both received and gave up the crucified one. Right off the bat, news is spreading. Jesus is alive. Acts 2.24, but God raised Jesus from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to hold him. That is awesome news. Awesome news. Mark 9.1 says what these ladies experienced. Mark, Mark 9.1 says what these ladies experienced. Said to them, I tell you the truth, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. You want to know the power of a king? It's the power over the grave, power over death, power over sin. The grave could not hold Jesus. So, evidence number one, stone rolled away. Evidence number two, tomb is empty. Evidence number three, Sunday. Did you know today is a witness to the resurrection? Sunday? You know when people used to worship God? Saturday. What happened on Sunday to change the day? Resurrection. Resurrection. Every Sunday when we meet for worship, we are pointing back to the resurrection of Jesus. Did you know that? How awesome is that? That's why we worship on Sundays, because Jesus rose on a Sunday. And that's a reminder. Number four, eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses. And it's not just some. It's not just some. You see how many people in the room are here? If something happens today, some guy comes running through in a clown suit, and like, oh, can you believe that on Easter? They brought a clown instead of an Easter bunny, and you guys saw it, and I saw it. People would believe us, right? There's enough witnesses here that people would believe us. There's more than that that saw Jesus alive after he was crucified. So check this out in 1 Corinthians 15. It says, For what I received, I passed on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, who was Peter, And then to the twelve, after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. He's saying, hey, and just in case you don't believe me, go ask them. Eyewitnesses. I'll give you a a quick story. Um, Disc golf over uh, COVID, over the quarantine, I had some spare time, but I wanted to make sure I didn't gain all this weight, so I would go disc golfing. It's free, and it's a lot of walking. You throw a, a disc, and you run after it, and you try to make it into this thing with chains. I'm not very good at it. Some of you are pretty good at it. I'm not. But on one occasion, on one occasion, at R.A. Jones, they have a small field. I don't care. It still happened. I take it from the launch pad. I throw this Frisbee. It goes around a pine tree, and all you hear is spring into the chains. And I walk down there. And I look, and it sure enough is in that basket. A hole in one. You would call it an ace. Now, you want to know what the best thing about this story is? I was with my friend, Charlie Rollins. Go by Chuck. And he signed the disc. A hole in one on this date, this course, with Chuck. He put it on there. And so now when I tell people, I've had a hole in one, I have evidence. I've got one witness. And people believe me. You want to know the worst time to hit a hole in one? When you're by yourself. But I've got witness. That's what you see in the Bible. Witness after witness. They see Jesus. They touch Jesus. They eat breakfast with Jesus. He is alive. And and then the the last piece of evidence I'll I'll give you for today is he transforms lives. He transforms lives. Um, and, And I told you, I know this is hard to believe. 
You want to know how we know that? Look at verse 7. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Why are the disciples not waiting for Jesus? Uh, because he was murdered. That's hard to believe. But Jesus had told them what was going to happen. Didn't make it any easier to believe, did it? And you remember the disciples, right? They're, they're all of their downfalls recorded. The shepherd is struck and the sheep scattered. The disciples run for their life. When Jesus needed a friend the most, they're gone. But don't you find this invitation awesome? The word from Jesus to this angel, hey, go get my boys. I'm going to meet them. Tell them to pick their heads up. We've got a job to do. I'm waiting for them, just like I told them. Tell them to come on. And I don't know your view of God. You might think, man, God's disappointed. No, God's calling you to himself. And you want to know why he's not disappointed in you? Because he's not disappointed in his son. And when he sees you before him, he sees the righteousness of his son because your sin and my sin have been paid for at the cross. That's the gospel. And so the disciples get to, to Jesus, and then you just look at how their lives changed. They go from wimps to warriors. And all of them, with the exception of one, lay their lives down. I, I think this is, is interesting. We'll go through it. Peter was crucified, and he has to be crucified upside down so that it wouldn't be the same as his Lord and Savior. Uh, guess what happened to his brother Andrew? He was also crucified. You go down the list. Matthew died by the sword, and so did James, son of Zebedee. James, the son of Alphaeus, Philip, Simon, and Bartholomew were all crucified. Thaddeus was killed by arrows, and Thomas with a spear thrust. All for their faith in a resurrected king. Spreading the news is what they lived and died for. One guy made it, John. You know what happened to John? He was beaten, he was arrested, and then he was exiled. Had to grow old by himself on an island because nobody wanted him around for his faith in sharing the gospel. You remember Jesus' brother, James, didn't believe in Jesus. But something happens in his life, puts his faith in Jesus, and then is killed for his faith. What happened? They all met the resurrected king. They all found out the grave couldn't hold them. And you want to know what? You too can meet the resurrected king. Many of you know him because he's changed your life. Many of you can know him, and he can change your life. A couple of things that, that this matter. Why does this matter some more? Why is this so important for us to answer? Uh, just three things, and, and this isn't all there is, but there are three huge things. Number one, because Jesus is alive, forgiveness is available. You can be forgiven. All of your wrongs can be wiped clean. That's what we're promised in the word. Hebrews 1.3 says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why did he sit down? Why do you sit down? Your job's finished. Colossians 2, 13 and 15, I think, paints a very clear picture. When you were dead in your sins, so if you're on your own, living for your own kingdom, doing whatever you want, you're still dead in your sins. But 
God can make you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he took away, how? By nailing it to the cross. Matthew one twenty one talks about how you're to name him Jesus. Why do you get the name Jesus? This is why. Because he will save his people from their sin. That's the angel's message to his parents. That's who, that's, you're going to name him Jesus. Why? He'll save his people from their sins. But then John the Baptist in John one twenty nine says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus, he's going to save his people from their sin. Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. How does he do that? Mark makes it clear. He said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom. His life for our sin. His righteousness given to us. That's how we're made right. That's how we're rescued from our sin. That's how our sins are paid for. Forgiveness of sin. But also eternal life. Beautiful passage. 1 Corinthians 15, 54, 57. You often hear this at funerals. But it's true today. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Thanks be to God. He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or, I love this passage. In John, John, he's going to Lazarus, right? He's going to, get this in your mind. You just buried a loved one. It's been four days. Jesus shows up and says, let's go to the tomb. And then he says, hey, roll that away. And, and I love the family members like, hey, uh, Jesus, he's been dead for a little bit. Uh, he stinks. And this is his response to that, right? This is a, a usual conversation. Jesus, you don't want to open up that casket. It's going to smell. This is his response to that. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, that's all of us in the room. If you live long enough, you're going to need a resurrection because you're going to die. And if you're alive, you can have life, but it's only in Jesus. That's why he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. That's why at funerals, we know that it's just a passing through. Death is just like sleep to God. He can wake up his children. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That was Jesus' question to the family. It's Jesus' question to you today. Do you believe Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Because it changes your eternity. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's yours. That's yours if you've met the king. And then finally, and we'll end with this, hope for life right now. This isn't something you just wait for. This is right now. You want to change your life now? Meet the king. Go to Christ. Run to Jesus. He is alive and he hears the prayers of his people. This quote from Tim Keller I think is helpful in this. It says, The resurrection of Jesus changes everything about how we live in the present. For example, why is life so hard now? Why is it so hard to do the right thing if we know that it will cost us money or our reputation or even our lives? Why is it so hard to face our own death or the death of loved ones? It's hard because we think this broken world is the only world we're ever going to have. It's easy to feel as if this money is the only wealth we'll ever have or this body is the only body we'll ever have. But if Jesus is risen, and he has, then our future is so much more beautiful and so much more certain than that. That's the good news of Easter. The kingdom of God is alive and well because the king has risen. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. 
Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your son. Lord, I thank you for gathering us here this morning. Nobody's here by accident. You have a word, a message for your people. And so I pray that we hear clearly what you have for us. I pray that you open up hearts, open up minds. I pray that we run to the king. It's in his name we pray. Amen.